Turn with me to Exodus chapter 19 tonight, <clears throat> and I want to share with you more of a teaching than probably a sermon. Trust that you'll find it interesting. We have a relatively mature audience in terms of been around the church at least for a while. Um, I see we have a lot of children, and we're not going to be able to speak on uh, that uh, spectrum of a level. I want to kind of share a uh, non-traditional style of uh, delivery tonight, for me at least. I want to kind of give you a double narrative. I'm going to share a common Old Testament story <clears throat> that within it holds a somewhat hidden truth or an idea that is rarely, if ever, seen or developed, I believe. I'm 65 years old. I believe I heard, have heard it alluded to one time. Been around church and uh, to graduated from two Bible colleges, and well, one Bible college and a university, and attended a number of classes in, in others, and uh, have been around religious institutions and churches and I've never I've never heard it dealt with but one time and that was that was actually just briefly on a radio uh, station driving down the road but I, I want to to uh, to dig that that truth or that concept that idea out of that Old Testament story uh, for you tonight uh, turn to Exodus chapter 19 and I want to read verse one through eight, you'll recognize this as a part of the Exodus story. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, for they were departed from Raphadim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel encamped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and God called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. <clears throat> now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all of the earth is mine. It's called a conditional promise. If you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. You're going to be something special above everybody else on the face of the earth. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? He does two things. He represents man to God and he represents God to man. You, Israel, are going to be an entire kingdom of priests in that you're going to represent God to the world, to the other kingdoms of the world, and you're going to represent them to God. During this period of time, Israel became the redemptive agency. There was no way to get into right relationship with God other than to become an Israelite. You had to come and start practicing their Jewish practices, their sacrifices, their atonements, etc. If you wanted to be redeemed, if you wanted to be in New Testament terminology, saved, 
you had to become a Jew. And you shall become a kingdom of priests and holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. This is what God's telling Moses on the top of Mount Sinai that are my intentions. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all the words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. Moses went down and told the people, went back up and told them. I want to talk to you tonight, give you a little teaching maybe on the idea of taking the bypass around Mount Sinai. Now, if any of you are Bible scholars or student of the Word of God at all, your first thought is, I didn't realize there was a bypass around Mount Sinai. <clears throat> and uh, hopefully I'll convince you before the night's over that there was. So I'm going to share this Old Testament story with you here tonight. The second thing that I want to do after I lay the foundation, because I've got to share this, this kind of a, this story, much of which will be very familiar, familiar with you, and kind of lay my case for this kind of unspoken hidden truth or idea that's rarely pointed out about Sinai, is that I want to take the behavior of three principal actors within this story who encounter this truth that I'm going to call to your attention. They have the opportunity of a lifetime to respond to this truth, either in a positive or a negative way, in a properly or a detrimental way. And they do so. And what the relevance and importance of that is. And then I promise, it may not seem like it in the course of the message, but before this message is over, I'll explain to you what that bypass route around Mount Sinai was and why that is significant. Father, I need your help tonight, Lord, in a special way. You burned this message into my heart. You want us to understand the significance and the, the, the principal truths of it. Burn it into their hearts, Holy Spirit. Give them ears to hear. Help me to lay my, aside my natural thoughts and ideas and just share uh, your truth with them tonight. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. <clears throat> the story begins with Moses at the burning bush. Nothing new to anyone that knows much at all. Exodus chapter number 3, you know the stories in the desert. The bush begins to burn. He recognizes something phenomenal that's unusual, and God comes and speaks to him. He tells him two things. I am come down to deliver Israel, them, <clears throat> out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and all the otherites. <clears throat> God saying, Moses, you, you all know the story, and some of this I I, I, I need to explain enough of the story in case someone doesn't know it, but a lot of it I'm going to just kind of assume that you know as, as we go along. God said, Moses, you know, turned aside, bush is burning. Moses, you're going to go down to Egypt, and you're going to lead my children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and you're going to lead them down into the land of Canaan. 
And then he also tells Moses, interestingly there, in verse number 12, and he says, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. Now Moses is over in the middle of the desert in Moab, not far from Mount Sinai. So God tells Moses two things. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to deliver them out of Egypt. I'm going to take them in Canaan, which is a land filled with milk and honey, which was basically saying a very luxurious and plush land that I'm going to take them to. And the second thing I'm going to do with this, I'm going to take them to Mount Sinai, and there they're going to worship me. Now the story continues. Moses goes down to Egypt, and there he goes down to try to convince his brothers that God's given him a divine mission. His brothers don't know him from Adam. He's been gone for 40 years. They don't know who Moses is. And he goes down there and he complains to God, they're not going to believe me. I go down there and say, I'm going to lead you out of this place and go somewhere else. How are they going to be? God says, well, I'll tell you what, Exodus chapter 4, verse 1 through 9 tells that story. God says, see that stick in your hand, that rod? Throw it down. Throws it down, becomes a serpent. Scares him. Says, grab it by the tail and pick it up comes a rod again, says, thrust your hand into to your bosom, into your robe, pulls it out, and it's full of leprosy. Stick it back in again, pulls it out. God says, when you get down to Egypt, that's what I want you to do in front of your brethren. It's going to convince them that God's with you. Verse number 30, chapter number 4, it says, Moses did these signs before his brethren that they might believe that he's ordained and sent of God. What's the significance of that? It's the beginning of of establishing a relationship between God and Israel. These Israelites, they know nothing about Jehovah God. They've been down in Egypt for 400 years. I mean, I'm sure there, was, there were bits and pieces about the story of God, that, but these are almost a bunch of uncircumcised uh, foreigners as far as the relationship that Abraham and God had in the beginning. They know virtually nothing about God. And God needs to establish some kind of a relationship to himself. They certainly knew nothing about a proper manner in which to serve him. So God sets out then to establish his sovereignty. We see this in the plagues. God starts sending the plagues on Egypt. You know that story, the first three plagues happens in Goshen. That's the name of the area where the Israelites are living. The same as it did in the rest of you. Ever wonder about that? Why would God send plagues? You know, all the rivers and the streams and the ponds turn into blood and there's no water. You understand why he does that to the Egyptians. But why does he do that to the Israelites? Well, because the Israelites don't know that he's the most high God any more than the Egyptians know that he's the most high God. I mean, they've seen gods everywhere in Egypt. They had all kinds of gods that they worshipped and served, and those gods worked miracles because when Moses goes down and throws his serpents down, the, the magicians throw their rod down, and it becomes a snake too. And when Moses turns the rivers into blood, the magicians turn water into blood too. And lice, they do that. I mean, I mean working miracles is no, I mean, so God begins to, elevate the degree of miracles that, that are taking place until he finally gets down to the fourth miracle, I believe it is, that flies. And finally, the, the, the magicians of Egypt say, you know, Pharaoh, 
we got to admit something here. God, you know, there, there's a God that's bigger than, 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 than whatever it is with our gods that's, that's involved here. And in that fourth miracle, no longer does he keep plaguing Goshen with the plagues. The rest of the plagues after that, with the exception of the 10th plague, the Passover, does it, does it happen in Goshen? And there he gives them a provision where they put blood on the doorposts and the, and the, and the door header. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so he makes provision where that, unless they disobeyed, that there is no one that is lost of the firstborn. And so God establishes, not only among his own children, but among Pharaoh, that he is the sovereign God, most high God of the universe. But God's twofold purpose remains. We see it in Exodus 6, 6 through 8. Maybe it's more clearly stated here than it was in the beginning there. Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you up out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgment. And I will take you to me for a people. What's God wanting to do? This bunch of almost heathens, even though they were the Jews, God's chosen people, I want to take you to me. I want to gather you. I want to, to begin to establish and have a special relationship with you. I want to take you to me. And I will be to you a God. I'm trying to express to you, Israel, that I want to have this special relationship. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. You're going to understand this relationship, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land concerning which I did swear to you to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for an heritage, for I am the Lord. Now, God said, there's a promise I made to some fellows. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I am the Lord. I keep my word. And so I'm going to take you out of this land. That's one dimension of this thing. But the other thing is, I, I want to be your God. And I want you to be my people. I want to have this relationship with you. So God has this twofold purpose of establishing a covenant, special, intimate, personal relationship with them and honoring the covenant that he has made to Abraham. Now, God has a specific plan for accomplishing this. Exodus 13, verse number 17. Some people think that, you know, the children of Israel started out of Egypt and they went out wandering in the desert and then they got rebellious and this and that. And for that reason, God eventually just kind of somehow happened to go about Mount Sinai. And the wandering, you know, the way that they went was kind of an afterthought. No, it was a thought from the beginning. Chapter 13, verse number 17, And it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines. Now, if you look on a map, had they left where they were in Egypt and gone through Philistia, into Canaan, it was just a few days' journey. And they would have been in the promised land. Now, why didn't God take them that route? 
God led them not. This was not an afterthought because they murmured in the desert. They hadn't even left Egypt yet when this was expressed. God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, oh, that, although that was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and return to Egypt. I don't take them because it, when they get to the land of Philistines, that, that's a pretty violent group. And if they have to go to war, they're liable to turn tail and run back to Egypt. Now, that's kind of interesting to me. I mean, isn't he God? Couldn't he just wipe out the Philistines? He just did the Egyptians. What did he do with the armies of the Egyptians? He just buried them in the Red Sea. Why didn't God just wipe out the Philistines, take them on into Canaan land, get it over with? I mean, isn't he the most powerful God on the face of the earth? Number one. And number two, What is this implying about the Israelites' understanding of their God? He just has worked all these miracles, all these plagues that are going on down here in Egypt, you know, hail and darkness and lice and all of these things and the Red Sea, they just see the Red Sea and all, you know, all, all this stuff going on. And yet, if the Philistines come out against them, what are they going to say? Oh, no, we, we can't handle that. It sounds like some Christian, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, well, God can do a lot of things, but oh, no, surely God can't handle that. What am I going to do? <laughs> I'm ahead of myself there, aren't I? <clears throat> you understand the low level of knowledge that they have? What God's saying is somewhere I've got to put some spiritual maturity in these folks. And the shortcut ain't going to cut it. I know that's bad grammar, Judy. I apologize. <laughs> the shortcut isn't going to work because there are no shortcuts to spiritual maturity. You know that? Even God recognized that. We get belief systems and mindsets in our head. I don't care, you know. You can build a mega church real fast, but you can't fill it full of mature Christians. I'll guarantee you that. That's why our land is filled with immature Christians. And, you know, they just keep reproducing that over and over again. And then we're struggling with trying to have spiritual maturity. We focus on one half of the Great Commission. I'm going to get sidetracked here. Ask people what the Great Commission is, and they'll tell you half of it every time. And that's the problem, because we misrepresent the Word of God. What is the Great Commission? Go ye in all the world and preach the gospel. Well, you got the first half right. What's the last half of it say? And that's just as much a part of the commission. He that believeth and baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded them. And if you aren't going to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded them, you haven't fulfilled the Great Commission. You can win them all to Jesus, but if you're not going to make disciples out of them 
and teach them all things, you haven't fulfilled the Great Commission. That's only half of the Great Commission. Don't forget the, 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 the last half of the Great Commission, whatever you do. I don't know why we can't grasp that concept. You know, you see a family that's got 20 kids and the 14-year-old still in diapers, and they have no manners. You don't say, man, now that's a prosperous family right there. <laughs> but how do we measure a good church? Oh, man, they got thousands in that church. Yes, sir, that must be a great, they got thousands. As if, where in the scripture did you find that? Do you have a different Bible in mind? I just wondered why, what, what verse in the Bible the Lord added to the church daily, but he, did he give that for a measure of spiritual maturity or what? Why don't we measure a church by how well those Christians are Christ-like? Because if teaching them to observe all things, whatever I have commanded you, is as much of the Great Commission as bringing them in the front doors, then why can't we measure both of those things? And if it's a healthy church, we should be able to measure the Christ-likeness of their life and say there is a healthy church. The divorce rate in that church is certain percentage less than any other church in the illegitimate births in the part of the children in that church are less than any other church and the alcoholism rate is going down in the families in that church because over the years they have developed and grown and the time spent in prayer is above average in that church and the time spent in the word of God is why don't we measure churches that way it's interesting we just if it's a big church it's a good church it's a great church Got me a field on that one, didn't you? Had two million in this congregation. <clears throat> we'll see how it, what it looks like before we get over with. Anyway, so God had a plan. He said, we're going to take Israel down. We're going to take them to the Canaan land. And we've got to take them by Sinai first because there are no shortcuts to spiritual maturity. It was my plan from the beginning. What is the divine purpose at Sinai? Sinai's purpose certainly was to establish the law. If I would ask you before I started this message tonight and said, what do you know about Sinai? You'd say the giving of the Ten Commandments. Well, first of all, it wasn't just the giving of the Ten Commandments. It was chapter 20 through about chapter 31. And believe me, there's a whole lot more there than just Ten Commandments. There was the entire giving of the law, the moral, ceremonial, and national law of Israel was given through that time there, the Ten Commandments are just the first few verses that are given there. The entire moral code for God living and priesthood and the tabernacle and all of that was given there on Mount Sinai. And it did include the law of God, but it also included a lot of how to have good relations with one another and care and proper care for your servant and how to treat one another in, 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 in reasonable ways and those kinds of things. Certainly the law of God. But the other purpose of Sinai that was equal was to reveal the complete nature of God. Exodus 34, verse number 6 and 7, says it in just a few words there. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, 
long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the Father upon the children, upon the children's children under the third and the fourth generation. Yes, he was there to give his law, but he was also there to reveal the fullness of his character and who he was, even though he's the sovereign, the most high God of heaven and earth. And he does have requirements and expectations. His end objective is to give mercy and to have forgiveness and to be long-suffering and to be abundant in goodness and truth. He wants to show who he is. At Mount Sinai, these poor Israelites been down there in Egypt. The only gods they've been exposed to are these unfair, cruel, pagan gods of Egypt. And I want an opportunity to teach, to show this nation who I am, just like I did Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God is just filled, no doubt, with anticipation. Oh, wait till we get these people at Sinai. I want to become friends with them like I, I, like I was to Abraham. It's all throughout Scripture. This is the passion and the desire of God's heart. I want to go down and walk with them in the cool of the evening as though it were like he did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Edom. I, I want them to become a kingdom of priests. Now, that's the story what is its relevance to us tonight? Well, its relevance is this. Israel is a type of the church. Egypt is a type of the world out of which we've been brought. The wilderness is a type of our maturing process. Canaan is a type of victorious representative living. That's how we are to live if properly done victorious in how we are to represent God here on earth. That's what the church is to do today, just like Israel was. They were a material kingdom. We were a spiritual kingdom. It's the major error of the prosperity gospel. They try to take the materialism of the Israelite kingdom and bring it over into the church. Jesus tried desperately to get that concept out of the minds of his disciples repeatedly. The story of the rich man and Lazarus was one of them. What other purpose does it have other than to explain to them that it's a spiritual kingdom? The rich man died, and what happened to him? He went to hell. What happened to the beggar? If your prosperity is a part of your blessing with God, then why did the rich man die and go to hell? And the poor man that sat daily at the gate, well, don't get me off on that. But the Old Testament, whoever had the biggest and the meanest and the most powerful God always won in war. They had the greatest temple. They had the, the greatest cities. And that's why you have the majesty of Solomon's temple. And that's why in battle it was important that they win because that was a sign in the Old Testament in the material kingdom of Israel that they, he was the most high God. In the New Testament, it became the church, which was a spiritual gift. That's why Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in there. You cut the guy's ear off, and he heals the guy's ear and said, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my 
people would fight. We've, we've gone beyond the material kingdom. This is the church age. It's a spiritual kingdom now, not material. You can't take the material promises of the Old Testament and drag them over into the New Testament. Rabbit trail number two. <clears throat> so what is the significance today? Because we're a type. Israel was a type, and the lessons that we see here are very important to us. The three actors, I want to call your attention to them, at Mount Sinai. Three primary actors, one of them is a group of people. And that first group is the people. Exodus 29, verse 45 and 46, once again, what is God's desire? What does he want to do with the people? I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them for I am their God. This is what God's doing. He's, he's brought them to Mount Sinai, that place where he's going to introduce himself to them and we're going to get to know one another. And God's just thrilled and he can't wait for Mount Sinai. But the people maintain their distorted view of God. What kind of a God, what kind of an understanding of God do they have? You see it, traces of it along the way, chapter 16 and verse number three. And the children of Israel said unto them, would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the fill. They're hungry, didn't have any food, and they're murmuring and complaining. And what they're saying is, I wish we'd died at the hand of the Lord. First of all, the idea that God would have killed them in Egypt. What kind of an understanding of, is there of this God that we're serving? That must have come from the Egyptian God. That we're not serving a God who wants to slay us. And are we serving a God that doesn't have a plan? Is this the sovereign God of the universe that brought us out of Egypt, doesn't even have a plan how to feed us? We're hungry. I would to God we would have just died by, you know, the best thing, the flesh pots, the, 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 these big kettles with meat and food in them. You got the picture, you know? Best thing we would have done is we would have just died, you know, God would have just killed us by these kettles with our bellies full because we just got through eating at the flesh pots in Egypt. What a distorted, warped view of God. After all of the miracles, after watching Pharaoh's armies perish in the sea and everything that God's done, so what does God do? He causes manna to fall and he feeds them. Do you think they had to murmur and complain to get that done? You don't think God had a plan? God was probably going to feed them anyway? But there again is the immaturity of their level and understanding of God. So they have this failed and distorted view of God, this half-truth about God. He does somehow kind of care about feeding us, but not really a whole lot. Well, God did care about feeding them. Why don't you just trust him and God's bringing them to Sinai where he can bring them up to a level of understanding of who he really is and what his nature is really like. And the second thing is the people remain uncommitted in their relationship with God. Chapter number 32 and verse 1, Moses has been gone up to the mountain for several days. They haven't seen him for whatever reason. And the people saw Moses delayed to come down out of the mountain. 
And the people gather themselves together unto Aaron and say unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us out of the land of Egypt, now did the man bring him out of Egypt? Or do you think maybe some pretty powerful God might have had something to do with that? We know not what has become of him. Aaron, make us a God. You know, just any God will work. You know, just go make something up and, you know, and, and let that go before us the rest of the way. You know, just, I mean, what? Uncommitted. We don't care which God it is. It just, you know, whatever serves our, our, our purposes will be just fine. Just up and make it. See, this manifests their material satisfaction. They've got manna to eat every day. They don't have any immediate needs right now. There's no plague coming. They, you know, they're satisfied in their material, natural sense. Why do they need God? <laughs> you know, just any God will work now. You let adversity come their way, though, and difficulty. And the miraculous has now become commonplace to them. They got manna, get up every morning and go out and gather together this miraculous little food called manna that they can bake, and if they keep it overnight, it turns rotten, but on Friday night, if they keep it, they can bake enough for two days and it doesn't turn rotten. And they see the miraculous every day and every week. But that's just become commonplace to them and taken for granted. Doesn't sound like us in the church or anything, does it? You know? Uncommitted in our relationship to God. The people had not yet fully comprehended the nature of God, only his actions. It's one thing to know the acts of God. It's one thing to know the nature of God. People will drive 100 miles to, hear, to see a miracle. You know that? If they hear there's a, some evangelist and there's a miracle or some kind of something going on, they'll, they'll drive 100 miles. You know, I'm going to tell you a little secret. You can go in your back room and get down on your face before God and seek the face of God. Which are you hungrier for? An intimate walk and relationship with the most high God or would you rather just see some wonderings or, 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 or actions up make us a God that they understood that it was the sovereign God the very thing he did in Egypt what he showed the Egyptians was that he was you, you the scripture doesn't tell us this but archaeology tells us that the Egyptians of that period of time all of those plagues were directed toward a specific God like you know the the bloody moraine on the cattle they had Apis the bull God in Egypt the Nile River they worshiped the Nile River he turned it to blood you know the the, the Pharaoh the firstborn would be the next king and he was worshiped the king was deemed to be a God every one of those plagues that God meted out was a plague that was directed towards one of the gods of Egypt where God is showing them that I am the sovereign most high God of the universe. But had these people grasped and comprehended that this is the God that we have come to worship and serve? No. They had not comprehended that at all. The people were brought here to worship. 
what did they want to do? Satisfy their own interests and desires. And we can even do that. Sometimes praise and worship is more about me enjoying it than it is about really honoring God and thinking and focusing on Him. Webster says, worship is extravagant respect or devotion, and it requires an understanding of that which I'm directing my worship to. You see, there is a God side of the covenant relationship. A covenant has two sides, and these children of Israel are all about one side of it. Doesn't sound like the modern church, does it? They were all aside about the blessings. Blessings, blessings. There's nothing wrong with blessings. Just honor the other side, that's all. What about your commitment to the Lord? What's in this thing for God? I mean, after all, he's the sovereign creator of the universe. He's the one that gave his only begotten son to die on your behalf. What, what's in this thing for God? You know, you're all about what I'm all about. We are all about, you know. I want my needs met. And I say, you know, I tell you what, if you'll get in that intimate relationship with God, God will take care of your stuff. God already had provision for them to go into Canaan. He already, he, he, he's got your future. He's got it all mapped out. He's got it all planned out. He, he, he's got every battle that you need to fight in the future all taken care of. If you'll get in communion relationship with him and become a friend with him like Abraham, you'll be surprised how, path, how smooth that pathway will go ahead of you. We want to forget that we're the bride of Christ and it's a bride and a groom. There's a two-way relationship. Uh, you married folks will understand when it begins to be a one-way street, it gets pretty rocky. God had Hosea, the Old Testament prophet, go down and marry a harlot. God commanded him to. You know why? He wanted Hosea to feel the heartache and the heartbreak of what it was like for someone to be unfaithful and untrue to him so Hosea could understand how God feels. Do you know how God feels when you don't put him first and you lie? You tell him you love him all the time. You don't think the sovereign God of the universe can measure our inner hearts and know? The second actor in this pageantry was the established leadership of the day. Exodus 32, verse 2 through 8. And Aaron said unto them, Break off your golden ear. This is after the people came to him and said, Up, make us gods. What does Aaron do? He's the next high priest. He's going to be the next church leadership, so to speak. Interestingly enough, at this very time, God is up there on the mountain telling Moses all the things that Aaron's going to be doing as the next high priest. And what's Aaron down here doing? And Aaron said unto them, Break off your earrings which are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them unto me. And all the people broke off the golden earrings that were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. And after he made it a molten calf, and they said, these be the gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Now they've matured pretty well, haven't they? <laughs> and when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. Doesn't say the people asked him to do that. Aaron did that on his own. And proclaimed and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. What Lord? To this golden calf? Yes, that's what he's honoring. 
And they rose up early on the morrow and offered up burnt offerings and bought priest offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and, and, and rose up to play. Verse number 24, same chapter. Verse 25, excuse me. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their own shame among their... This is the, quite the high priest we've got here. Quite the shindig going on. But this is the prevailing leadership of the day. Failed to understand, first of all, and honor the true purposes of God for his people. Often the greatest obstacle of God's purposes and establish is the established leadership of the day, not the outside opposition. Look at, look at it down through history. Look at the nation of Israel. Not only on this particular instances, but in general, go back and read all of your history. Israel's failures is from its own leadership. There were a few good kings, for example, but I don't know exactly the percentage, but probably 90 some odd percent of the kings were evil kings that led Israel away until they ultimately went into Babylonian captivity. And they, 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 they lost the ownership, or not the ownership, the possession of their lands virtually to this day. They've got a small portion back now. They still own it all. They just aren't in possession of it. There's a difference. They own it all because God said they do. But it was because of their own leadership, the established leadership of the day. Look at the New Testament. What was the problem? The devil and the opposition from outside? No. It was the synagogues and the scribes and the Pharisees. It was the established religious leadership that was not in tune with God, that did not understand the true purposes of God. Look in church history. Where has the problem been? It's in the backslidden, half-truth, established leadership. Where is the problem in the church world today? It's the same place. It's people that don't really understand what it means to be in tune with the heart of God. You don't ordain homosexual priests and understand what's going on with the heart of God. And much lesser offenses. You've got people that are building their own kingdoms and raising money in ways to pad their own pockets and under the name of the Lord and all kinds of stuff that's going on under the name of God that is just sad. The second thing that the established leadership did is they valued the favor of the people above searching, serving righteously before God. They gave the people what they wanted, not what God wanted. They did like politicians. They tested the wind before they chose their position. Instead of saying, this is what the word of God says and this is what I'm going to stand for, they just kind of felt out the congregation and how they thought they should go. They valued the favor of the people. They sought to establish, number three, Aaron sought to establish his own prominence. Though he had to compromise truth to do it. Number four, feared the loss of his prominence or position greater than he feared God. I've got to move quickly here. The third actor, True spiritual leadership in our example. Moses, what, a, what an example in this particular case. 
God, Moses has a great relation, uh, encounter with God. God wanted to have that same encounter with all the people. He would have liked to have revealed himself. They may not have gone to the top of the mountain, but God would have, would have communed and fellowshiped with them and Aaron just in the same way. That was his desire. That was the purpose. That was the focus. That was the plan of God from the time of the burning bush. I want to take this people. That was his plan when he took them out of Egypt. I'm not going to take them through Philistia. I'm going to take them down past Mount Sinai because there I have an opportunity to reveal myself and for them to encounter me. That's my plan. Moses' example, four things. Moses, first of all, had a proper perspective of God. Exodus 32, verse 26 through 28. This sounds pretty harsh, but I want you to weigh this out. God's not some mamby-pamby, little, full of grace, do anything you want to do, whatever. I know we live in the dispensation of grace, but we misunderstand that theology. There was grace in the Old Testament, too. There was grace before the time of the law. Noah's day, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace, there's always been grace. I know we live in, quote, the dispensation of grace, but that doesn't mean that God just totally ignores our actions and that we can get by with any kind of sin and, and whatever. God is also a God of wrath. He is a God of judgment. He is a holy God. And yes, his grace and patience and mercy and long-suffering is, is a lot, lot farther and more. But God still has a demand of righteousness and a right to claim it in your life and an expectation of it in your life. He paid a very dear price to buy you and he owned you. And you have an obligation toward him. And when Moses comes down and he sees the children of Israel doing what he does, what does he do in Exodus 32, verse number 26? And Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all of the sons of Levi, the future priest, a tribe, gathered themselves together unto him. And Moses said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side. Strap on a sword, in other words. And go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Do you get the picture of this? Put the sword in your hand and start walking out through the camp of Israel with the sword in your hand and just walking and start thrusting men through with the sword. Your own brothers and sisters. When the wrath of God is manifest, Moses commands it because he knows He's a jealous God, and he needs to make it known unto these people. Verse 28, and the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. Moses recognizes and realizes the wrath of God because Moses came close to being killed. Back in Exodus chapter 4, that'll mess up your theology just a little bit. Chapter 4, verse number 24, and it came to pass by the way in the end, that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Moses, 
He's on his way down from the burning bush, on his way down to Egypt. You know why? Because God realizes that Moses has not even honored his covenant and circumcised his son. And when God recognizes it, I've revealed myself to Moses and, and I've told Moses what I want him to do and, and Moses realizes and should realize all these things and now he hasn't even taken it upon himself to circumcise his own son. And the anger of the Lord is, killed against, is kindled against Moses. In chapter 4, verse number 24, it says, And the Lord sought to kill him. And Zipporah, his wife, takes her son out and circumcises him. Verse number 25, and Moses realizes, Yeah, I may be God's man, but I've got an obligation to honor what I know God has called, oh yeah, thank God Brother Yates, that's in the Old Testament. I guess you haven't read Acts chapter 5, have you? Where God slew him in the New Testament? That was under grace in the New Testament. Where Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and God slew him. Don't think that grace just lets you ignore the nature of God. The church must regain its fear of the Lord. Moses had a proper perspective of God. He recognized that he's a holy God. He's a righteous God. He has expectations. Number two, Moses made proper preparation to meet with God. I'm not going to take the time to read all of these, but 19, chapter 10, chapter 19, verses 10 through 15, that they're the long list of things that the people had to go through, and I'm sure Moses went through preparation as well to go and meet with God. Psalms 24 and 4 says, you know, who's going to ascend into my holy hills and etc. he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Well, there again, Brother Yates, there you go from the Old Testament. Well, what about 1 John 1 and 7? If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. It doesn't say if we don't. It says if we do walk in the light, as he is in the light. First John 3 and 21, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence. The implication is if our heart does condemn us, you're doing something wrong, you don't have something right in your life, don't have time to develop that. But Moses made proper preparation in his heart to meet with God. Number three, Moses had a proper passion for God. Exodus 33, verse number 18 through verse number 23. And he said, I beseech thee, speaking to God, show me thy glory. And he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show more mercy. And he said, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. God says, and the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my goodness pass by, that I will put thee in the cleft of a rock, and I will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will make, take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Moses has a passion. His desire 
was not content with the fulfillment of natural needs. Here is a man who lived in the palaces of Egypt. The children of Israel said, would to God we were back in Egypt every time something went wrong. What did they do in Egypt? They they were in, in bondage. They were slaves. They lived in poverty. And every time a little something went wrong, they wanted to go back to the world and, and wallow in that kind of... Here's a man who lived in the palace and had it all. But once he tasted of the goodness of God and come to understand who God was and came to really know God, he had no... You never hear him say, would to God, I was back in Egypt, even though he lived in splendor there. Oh, no, he had his material needs met, but that did not satisfy his passion. His desire for God was not satisfied miraculous manifestations. He had seen the miracles. He had seen everything. My, what he had had seen, you know, firsthand, he lifted that stone. He's the one that, that, that made the plagues take place. He's seen it all, but he still wasn't satisfied. What I want is to see your face, oh God. I want to know you intimately. Bring me into you. I want to wrap my arms as though it were around you, God. I'm not satisfied with some mediocre relationship with you. His desire for God was not satisfied. When surrounded with wonders, there was thunder, there was fire in the mountain, there was lightning, the earth was quaking. He saw the workings of God everywhere. But oh God, show me your face. The face of God alone was Moses' passion. 1 Corinthians 3 and 18 The New Testament says, Paul expresses it this way, we all with open face behold as in a glass. The word there literally is mirror. What we are challenged to do is to look into the face of God like it was a mirror until we are changed into the same image or likeness from glory to glory. And when Moses came down from the mountain, Exodus 34 and 35, he didn't know it, but his face literally glowed. He had to put a veil over it. You want to win the lost? You want to bring the the world in? Get in the inner chamber with the Father. And what will happen is the world will, will, will say, you know what, somebody's been, somebody, there's something different about that guy. I don't know much about God and church or whatever, but I know there's something different about that guy. That's the testimonial that we will have to the world. Moses gave proper priority to God. Once Moses was commissioned, a lifetime of service became his pursuit, not a hobby. This serving God thing is a lifetime pursuit. It's not a hobby. Conclusion, I've got my watch here. I've tried to watch it, but I forgot what time I started, and I know I've spoke too long. I always do. What was and is the bypass around Mount Sinai? It was the wilderness. For these folks, because they never fulfilled what God wanted they never understood his nature he took them out in the wilderness to try to get them to understand it they never did so they died in the wilderness 
They never physically bypassed Mount Sinai. But they bypassed the purpose of Mount Sinai. And the nation of Israel continues to this day to bypass it. One day he's coming back. And it'll happen. The church has now replaced Israel as God's redemptive agency. God has a similar plan and purpose for the church while there is no physical Sinai because the church is spiritual and not material in nature. God's plan is still to reveal his full and complete nature to us. To us. Are we bypassing Sinai for the prosperity and blessings of a material Canaan? Are we bypassing seeking the face of God and getting to truly know his character like the Israel of old? Are we mistaking knowing his provisions, miracles, and wonders for truly knowing him? We can feast on his manna and other provisions and never truly know him face to face. I pray that like Moses, my priority and passion is to find that place of personal communion with Moses found at Sinai and not take the bypass around Mount Sinai. And sometimes a lot of the adversity that we face does not come from the devil. No. You know all that mess they faced in the wilderness? That wasn't the devil that brought that on. That was because they failed at Mount Sinai. Had they met God and realized what God wanted them in their life, they would have left and just gone on from there right into Canaan land. And we rebuke the devil and we try to get the devil and we just blame everything on the devil. And what you need to understand is that that continual defeat and adversity that you're going through, why don't you deal with that pet sin in your life? Why don't you deal with that lack of commitment, that unsurrendered area of your life? Why don't you let that area go? Why don't you get out of the carnal, out of the natural, get in fellowship and communion, and come face to face 